Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're in for something a little bit different on this interview. I'm interviewing Alina Kanner, who is one of the leading postural experts in the country. Hard to believe, but it's true. And uh, let me give you the backstory on how I encountered Alina. Uh, I've interviewed Leland Stillman, who is a really phenomenal integrated medical physician twice before. And he had mentioned this Posture Re Restoration Institute, or PRI for short, uh, the last time he was at my house. And because he learned of it from a person that he's working with in his, in his practice and just said enormously great things about it. And then Taylor DeGroote, who I also interviewed for as an optometrist, recommended a, a postural restoration training and specifically Alina, because they're, they actually know each other and they live in the New York area in Long Island specifically. So I said, okay, okay, this is great. And then I, I probably need to see her. And then the, the third coffin in, or nail in the coffin was when I have been trying to treat my bunion for last year or so. And it was inspired by Mark Sissons, who I've interviewed in the past too. And he had a company that just created this new shoe called Paluva, which is a little bit similar to the Vibram, Vibram actually shoes, but they had the five toes in, in, in separate pockets and uh, separates the toes. But this is better. It's more of a minimalist shoe. And, and uh, he, he was convinced it would be helpful. So then I, I asked, I went to, to New York to see Alina just to find out specifically if this was going to be a rational thing or is, or is it something better or something in addition that I should do. And she helped me understand that actually it was a flawed, there, a flawed approach. Like so many things in life that I've done, you think you're doing the good thing, like low carb and fasting, you know, when it actually hurting yourself. So turns out, and I'm pretty convinced this is true, that I likely got the bunion because I stopped wearing shoes. I hadn't been wearing shoes for over a decade, over a decade. And, and this is fine if you're walking on the beach all day or in your grass, but I'm at my home and I have uh, tile floors and it's very hard surfaces. And that is not good. And Alina's going to give her, give us her, her uh, feedback on this discussion in a moment as soon as we bring her in. But um so I think that's what caused it. And while Mark's shoes were useful because they separated the toes, they weren't as good. So she helped me understand and identify a few good options. And, and I'm actually wearing those shoes now. And I wear my shoes inside my house. Now I just don't wear them on the beach, which is great. So I'm really excited about this journey. And I'm starting to see some improvements, certainly with range of motion. I've never had any pain, but it was a definite deformity. So I'm just excited for me myself personally, because most of the people that Alina consults with, this posture, posture Re restoration institute training is designed, and she's going to go into the history of it, but it's really targeted for people with severe pain. And, and frequently they find that posture is a massively contributing 
uh, factor. And then once the posture is corrected, amazing things happen. So with all that intro and the reason why you're on the podcast, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I think it's probably best to give us a bit of your background and tell us all about the PRI, the Posture Restoration Institute, and, and its history, because virtually no one watching this understands or has even heard of that. So, Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle because really it is a small institute and it's only been around for 20 years. So like a lot of really great things, sometimes they don't get the information out there, but it's really starting to grow a lot in the last five to 10 years. So it's been great. But let me explain a little bit about me and how I kind of got into it. So I'm a certified athletic trainer, meaning that I have a master's degree. Um, and my background is to be able to work with sports teams, professional sports teams and be on the sidelines and really help those guys out when they're getting hurt. And so ultimately, I went to school for that because I really wanted to help athletes. I wanted to work in the world of USA Gymnastics. Um, I grew up as a gymnast myself. I was a high-level Olympic weightlifter. And along with my journey of seeing how athletes were treated in the more conventional model, I also was an athlete myself. So I saw the discrepancies in how we were treating these athletes and how they really were not getting better. It was almost like we were just slapping Band-Aids onto them to get them through the season. So I really did not want to participate in that world, and I wanted to pave a new way for myself. So when I finished graduate school, I ended up finding out about postural restoration. It was in our world. I had heard about it in grad school. So it was already the word about it was getting out there. But the institute itself is it's fascinating what they do. They're actually an institute based out of Lincoln, Nebraska, which is such a random place to have a hub of you know academic knowledge, but that's where they're located. And the founder is a man, his name is Ron Hroska. He's a physical therapist. He actually, the background history on him is that he is one of 13. He grew up on a farm. And when he was growing up, he, he worked with the animals and noticed all these asymmetries in their gait. And so the obsession with asymmetry started when he was really young. And he ended up going to dental school and actually leaving dental school because he was so obsessed with the asymmetry of the palate. The actual palate in your mouth is asymmetrical. And the entire institute that he's created in the last 20 plus years, most of his life has been dedicated to this, is teaching us about these asymmetries. And yes, we talk tons about posture because posture is asymmetrical and posture is how we walk and how we breathe and how we get through life. But it's really off of these natural, normal asymmetries that we are born with. And that can dictate how we function in life, whether it's you know, excellent or whether we're struggling. So we do treat, um, you know, when people come to see me uh, now, I'm treating a lot of chronic pain, but also I do like, I also have some professional golfers who are coming to me and they just want to up their game because you can change something very specific on an athlete and it can open up a world of opportunities for them. So postural restoration is actually getting really well known in major league baseball. So it's really a vast array of people that we can work with. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. I'm based in New York. So I get to see very interesting wide range of people from Broadway, you know, singers to the mom who's struggling with three, four kids at home and, you know, is in pain. And 
So it's really definitely made its way more lately into the holistic world, which I'm very excited about because that's really where I want to bring this to people who are interested and open-minded to learn about it because it is an alternative method to treating a lot of things we learn about in conventional medicine. So, Perfect. So maybe as well, still fresh in your mind, uh, at least maybe not your mind, but the mind of the people who are watching this. And I shared my story with my Bundy and maybe you can give it, provide, we can jump in there and just comment on that. And then we can go into some other areas. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to start too, because everybody wears shoes. So we're all outside wearing shoes. We're all in our house. Maybe we're barefoot. And there's been a huge hit lately in the last, I'd say 10 years to be wearing barefoot minimalist shoes. I know. Or no shoes. Like me. Yeah. And no shoes is okay. And we talked about this when I, when we met. No shoes is fine if you are out in nature. I love grounding. We all know that there's an exchange of frequency from the earth into our bodies. And that's great if you are outside on a grounding mat, you know, really outside in sand, in 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 grass. However, our society is not built like that. We are not walking outside in grass and sand all the time. We are walking on flat surfaces. I look around at my house right now. It's a wooden floor. It's a tile floor. And the problem with that is when we are walking with our feet that have arches, we need to be able to give that foot the proper contact with the ground. It ends up actually just slapping the ground and not creating that proper movement range of motion in the foot where we should have pronation, supination, pronation, supination. When we're missing that range and that flow, it actually can lock up your neck. It can lock up your rib cage. So wearing a specific shoe can open up that ability to have better range of motion at the feet, which can transfer up the chain. So it's a really hard topic for people because the minimalist shoes have a great marketing scheme. And so, you know, they're saying our ancestors were barefoot, but you have to think about the context of that. The context of our ancestors being barefoot, they were outside. They were not walking on pavement all day long in cities. So my- Or wood floors or tile floors. Right. Yeah. Right. They they were really outside in nature where the foot's ability to pronate and supinate was still there because nature is uneven surfaces. So I want to get across, it is okay to be outside barefoot if you're walking on an uneven surface on the beach, like you said earlier. But if you are in society and you're walking on those bare, in barefoot minimal shoes or no shoes at all, and you're having pain or symptoms, doesn't necessarily have to be pain if you have hormone issues, et cetera, a shoe with proper um, ability to ground, sensory ability to ground, is going to most likely, almost always, make a positive change for that person's well-being. So when I say the shoe gives that brain the ability to sense the ground better, I'm talking about certain aspects of the shoe. So if somebody comes in and they're wearing a Nike, I'm going to take them out of that Nike. Nike is just an example. Adidas, Reebok, it's the same thing. Those shoes, a lot of those more known shoes, do not, they lack what we call a heel counter. A heel counter is the back of the shoe that kind of grabs the heel and you can feel it. And if it's hard, it's going to hold the heel in a better place, which is going to position the talus bone, which sits on top of the heel, to align the body upwards in a better position. If that heel counter is minimal or non-existent, you could really feel a barefoot shoe. They, there's zero heel counter there. Then that person's heel, calcaneus and talus, is going to go in whatever position that brain wants it to go in. 
you're not giving that person the stability it might need to combat the stressors of society's life just by living in places that are flat ground, concrete floors, wood floors. So that's one component of the shoe. The other component of the shoe is the arch. So when you think about walking on the beach, when you're putting your foot in the sand, there's sand that comes up to solidify ground that part of your arch in your foot. We don't have that with when you're walking on flat surfaces, you're just slapping that foot into the ground. That arch is getting no feedback. So we actually, I see a lot of people like enter a more parasympathetic state when you just put an arch in their shoe. So those are kind of the things we look at with shoes. Now, PRI actually makes a shoe list and you have this, we talked about this, but they, it's a free list that they have every six months about, they put out a new shoe list. I think they actually just released one last week, which is awesome. And it's free and it's online and it shows you how to test your shoes. They can't test every single shoe that's out there, but they do test this, a lot of running shoes, Asics, Brooks, New Balance, sometimes Hoka's, and they will give qualifications of what these shoes fit into. So for example, if somebody has a really high arch foot versus someone with a really medium arch, the, the person might prefer a specific shoe. So I, that's one of the first things I do with patients is I take them out of what shoes they're in, change them. And or no shoes. <laughs> or no shoes. Or no shoes. And I, I, I'm ultimately, it seems so simple how a shoe could change how you feel or, or not change how you feel, depending on the person. If, if they don't want to come out of a shoe, that tells me a lot about that person's personality. But when I change the shoes on people, people can't believe it because it's such a simple thing you wouldn't think about. We've been wearing shoes since we're one and a half years old ish. So um, it has to do with the specific shoe the person's in. And then exactly what you said before, if they're not wearing shoes, if they're in a minimal shoe, that is a big red flag for me as a practitioner. It's something I need to address to get their body to be able to relax and get into that calm state to combat whatever they're dealing with, whether it's trying to get their speed up five miles per hour throwing a baseball or it's chronic pain that they've had for the last 20 years. I still am going to go about that in the same way. Now, what you talked about with your bunion is really interesting because bunions specifically can happen on right or left foot. They're different and should be treated slightly differently from side to side. And this is something that I think chiropractors, PTs, et cetera, movement professionals don't always know about the body, but we are asymmetrical. So we need to be treated as if we're asymmetrical because we are, we have a diaphragm on the right side that's bigger and larger and it attaches lower into the lumbar spine compared to the diaphragm on the left side. We have three lobes of lung on the right and only two on the left. And we have a heart that sits on the left chest wall, which kind of keeps that whole chest wall hyperinflated. And we have a, on average, three pound liver on the right side of our body. So because of this internal asymmetry, we're going to see slight changes in how that person, one, feels, two, moves. And so when we look at feet and bunions, let's go back to the bunions, bunions on the right foot versus bunions on the left foot are actually coming from kind of different reasonings. So when I see a bunion, in general, I know that that person is most likely lacking an arch of their foot. And that is because bunions is when the toe is kind of coming inwards towards the um, other toes, 
that person's ability to feel the ground with their arch is going to be limited most likely, especially if it's on the right foot. I can go into the details of that if you want me to, but when I get give that person an arch under their arch where it should be, and if they're not normally sensing that, we not necessarily see a huge decrease in the bunion. Maybe with time, it's not an immediate change because it took time for that person to get a bunion in the first place, but we see major changes in that person's brain's ability to feel their feet on the ground. And somebody with a bunion has really lost that ability to pronate, which is flatten the arch into the ground, and then push off and use their right glute to push off and get the body weight to the left. So when I see bunions, I know that there have been bony changes to adapt to somebody's gait pattern or postural breathing pattern, which gait, posture, and breathing are really all tied together. They're all one thing that I look at. So... Now, interestingly, you had uh, put a arch. My bunion is on the left, but you put the arch support on the right. Yeah, I did. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And I did that because of the same reason. So when I see a bunion on the left, I know that there's other reasons happening. You're somehow getting to your left side, maybe not properly, but it tells me that you're not getting off your right leg, even though your bunion's on your left. So I actually treated your right side to, to give you better treatment on your left side. Oh, and obviously- Didn't realize that. Yeah, so I gave you something that allows you to pronate that right foot, flatten into the ground, push off, use your right glute to get over to the left foot so you don't have to try so hard to get to your left side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Now, just to finish this up and then we can go into some other areas is, um, I think it's still helpful, at least my- my view on this is that body is enormously capable of repairing damage, even in something like a solidified bone bonus, bony deformity, like a bunion. Yeah. And that if you correct the underlying fundamental reasons that caused it, and then put adaptive uh, corrections in there, that it will eventually heal. Now it's not going to heal in a week or a month or even a year. It might take a decade or longer. It took a decade to happen. So why wouldn't it take a decade to resolve? So that's my philosophy and, and in, a, in an attempt to add additional corrective for vectors uh i put a spacer between the bunion and the and the the, the, the second toe uh to keep them apart and it actually i found a brace that has a steel bar on the one side and velcro tabbing so it is it has a velcro uh band that keeps the the great toe pushes it medially and it seems to work really well even better than the spacer so I'm, I'm assuming we haven't discussed this, but I'm assuming you okay with the spacers and, and then providing the corrective forces to push it in the right direction. Yeah. And the spacer that you were using is a little different than the spacer I had imagined when you had told me that you were using spacers, because a lot of the spacers are really thick and bulky, but yours was very minimal. Mm -hmm. So I prefer what you're using. And I actually tested you in it. So I knew that it was fine for you. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's, there's, um, there's a lot of different things out there. I just recently saw something called the Naboso, which is basically an arch. It's not even, it's like a piece of rubber mm -hmm. that it, it's a little prickly. And the goal of it is to give the brain some better sense of like feeling the ground. However, I've seen it a couple of times and I'm testing people and they're testing very poorly on it because it's almost like you're walking on something prickly all day. Your brain doesn't like that. Your brain wants to be comfortable a bit. So what's interesting with you is that could work for you. And it did because I know because I tested you, the spacer. But 
if I put it in me and someone tested me, I don't know if that would work for me, which mm -hmm. is where PRI can become a little bit more specific and is person dependent. It's almost like we all need certain things underlying, but then you can specify it towards each person, which is kind of like holistic health in general. Yeah, it's customized, individualized. Because yeah. yeah. everyone has their uh, pretty much unique characteristics of life that, that contribute to where they're at. So uh, why don't you review some of the more common things people see you for, which you said is primarily pain, and some of the underlying themes that surround those and some commonalities that you find that might be generally useful for people? Sure. So, I mean, typically, sometimes I'll, I'll even tell you some things that I see that are atypical that I guess not every practitioner would put two and two together because people really like that. But I do see the typical low back pain for 10 years and they can't figure out why and hip pain for five years. They don't know why. That is a lot of what when people are coming to see me, they've seen a lot of practitioners prior and they just can't figure out what is going on, why they can't get rid of the pain they've had. So chronic pain, maybe neck pain. Um, but the difference I think is when I'm diving into somebody's history, I'm going really far back and I'm looking to see what is going on with their eyes. What have they done dentally? What's going on with their feet? But teeth, eyes, if they've had any major head injuries, because those specific things will actually change, like it could, it could really change an entire treatment plan for somebody. If, no, if, if the person doesn't have a history and they're in pain, I'm going to go very basic. I'm going to look at the typical PRI techniques and I'm going to treat them like that. But when I hear things like LASIK eye surgery, They've been put in a monovision eye prescription. They're in a progressive. So those are my vision, certain vision implications or certain questions I ask about vision, about difficulty reading or difficulty um, tracking with the eyes. There's specifics about that. Or if I hear with dental, teeth pulled, um, you know, permanent teeth pulled, trauma to teeth when they were young or even as an adult, but really at a young age, it can be very detrimental. Um, of course, we look at root canals too, but from a sensory perspective, the brain still senses that there's a tooth there. I, I ask because I know a lot about it and I want to make sure I'm giving my patients the best care possible. Excuse me for interrupting, but the teeth pulling is primarily for the concern that there wasn't something inserted into that space. Yeah. Because right. if you do that, then it's not as much of an issue. Exactly. So when you pull a tooth, first of all, one pull, one tooth is out and there's still a top tooth there, that top tooth is going to come down to meet that bottom tooth. We're going to have something called super eruption happening. You don't want that in your mouth. It's going to change how your bite feels. So your bite, how people's teeth touch is actually very important to cranial posture, cervical posture. So a lot of times people will chew on one side or only feel one side of their bite. And that can be of concern for me. And when teeth are pulled and nothing put in, no implant put in, then that brain might not or, be able or to partial. Yeah. Or, or partial. That yeah. brain just might not be able to figure out where center is. I asked people about having braces multiple times. If I hear that someone has braces three times in their life, I know that there's something going on with their body. It's not the teeth that keep shifting necessarily. It's the teeth that are trying to find center because their body doesn't know where their center of mass lies. So yeah, I, I treat the common things that all practitioners, I think, treat. Back pain, neck pain, shoulder, shoulder dislocation I had yesterday. I'm also treating a lot of lately POTS, dysautonomia, um, dystonia, so 
a little more neurological conditions. Could that be from uh, the jab or COVID? It could. And I, I will say that there is, I do see, I ask that question and I do hear that, you know, that that's a, on, on top of it thing. But why do some people get that? Not everybody. So then it's like, well, maybe that person had the jab and had a tooth pulled two years prior and they've already started to experience a little bit of visual symptoms and they got into a pair of glasses. So I really have to like sift through that history to find out what's going on. And those, the people that even like I, I've been seeing um, involuntary neurological twitching lately, a lot of that. And that goes along with all of this. Like why does one person have that? And maybe this person just has low back pain. So it's going to show up differently. But people that have had dental history, vision history, major head injury history, I tend to see that they more, they come with more uh, things that they're coming to me for me to treat more high level neurological conditions. But I also sometimes just treat the, you know, typical, my foot hurts. It's been bothering me for six months. I don't know why. And I've done some PT and it didn't work. So, but I just look really in depth at a history of somebody. And then I have practitioners I work with because I'm not a dentist and I'm not an optometrist. And I might know a little bit about those specialties, but I am, I, I leave that to my practitioners, but I'm the person that decides, okay, after five sessions that we've done together, this person maybe needs to go to my optometrist because I can't figure out why their body's not staying centered. So. Yeah. And that's actually when I visited you, I visited you and Taylor, who's an optometrist and we did our session evaluation and session and treatment. And then we went to a local optometry clinic and rechecked my uh, prescription. And it, of course it changed. So I got a new prescription for glasses. Yeah. It was good. And the, the beauty behind that is, well, me and Taylor have worked together with, you know, cases before, but we're able to do a joint appointment and give you something that's better for you. And I was able to test you in standing and your body was in a good spot before you did that appointment. So I was not surprised at all that your prescription changed. It, it, would, it would be surprising if your prescription didn't change mm -hmm. because we got you into such a good state and I can tell with my testing. So with postural restoration, they give us simple range of motion tests. I did them on you. Mm -hmm. Ones that we learn in, in school, but well, some of them that we learn in school, we might learn them with a different name. And we are looking at these range of motion testing as a completely different mm -hmm. uh, way of looking at testing. I'm not just looking at shoulder internal rotation. I'm looking at if you can't internally rotate your shoulder, how well are you able to expand your chest wall? And so when I tested you, you had gotten off a flight and you were, you were tight. I was not surprised at that. But by the end of the session, you were in a better spot, which really allowed you to get into a good uh, position for the, the, uh, the optometry exam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was a interesting when I, I haven't been driving a lot, but during this time I picked the date we picked was the date that there was a flash floods all over New York. They yeah. shut down LaGuardia. They shut down FDR. It was just a massive disaster environmentally, but it was, but it was fun. We did have, we had a fun time. Yeah. It was fun. All right. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad I went. It was really, really enlightening. So, and, and for people interested, you have a place that you see uh, patients in Manhattan. 
Yeah. Forty second so, Street or somewhere in there. Yeah, it's forty fifth and fifth. Okay. And it's actually the only PRI center in Manhattan. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's not a lot of these places around. No, you have to have like certified practitioners working there. So I got my certification earlier this year. It, on average, it takes people five to seven years to get the certification just because postural restoration is so loaded with information. And it's it's fascinating. We take it's like medical school. Yeah. Back to the length of time to have your training and be, and be, get uh, licensed. Yeah. It's, it's tough. They teach us, you know, in two day courses, I just took one this weekend, 16 hours and it's packed with information. They can't even finish giving us all the info. So they give us these binders and we sit and we study them. And Ron puts out information for us in uh, under practitioner, like you have to have a username, et cetera. And they're constantly educating. And there's a center in Lincoln, Nebraska, that they really treat people that are coming from all over the world which is, it's pretty amazing the things that they're, they're working on over there. But the biggest thing with um, PRI is that they take information from optometry, old optometry journals, just regular optometrists, ophthalmology. They take information from dentistry, tons of information from dentistry. They take a lot of us as, you know, a lot of what we learn is craniosacral stuff and then osteopathic medicine. So they've taken bits and pieces of all these professions and meshed it together to understand human asymmetry and treat, not necessarily treat, but allow us to learn how to flow internally using all this information. So. Yeah, and the results can be pretty spectacular because you're addressing the, one of the foundational contributing factors to why you've acquired your dysfunction. Yeah, it always comes back to the brain and mm -hmm. we always know that, but it's hard for people to totally understand that. It's hard for dentists to grasp it. It's hard for optometrists. It's a little easier for optometrists because what they learn in school. But when you're telling a dentist, hey, I need better contact on this right canine in a dental appliance so that this person can relax in their body, the dentist is like, what are you talking about? So dental schools are not built like that. But ultimately, the whole goal of postural restoration is to give that person better grounding in their body, teach them how to breathe, and then um, it's neurology. You're playing with the brain. You're playing with signals going into the brain. So, yeah. All right. So people, in my experience, tend to learn best by examples. So I'm wondering if you can share a few other case histories that you have that that uh, are partic particularly illustrative of the what's what you're doing there to help people recover their sense of well-being. Sure. So let's see. I have a case I'm working with. I just, we kind of finished up. So this is a good one. She came to me. Her parents are both doctors and she came to me. She had knee pain and she had low back pain, but she really had, a, um, her nervous system was just off. She was having some fainting episodes. She was really just struggling to get through the day. Some sensitivities, light sensitivities, sound sensitivities. She just did not feel herself. She's very young, early 20s. To have these problems in that age when that's very young to have that. Also, mind you, living in Manhattan. So that's, that's a big stressor on the system. She was in an eye prescription. I 
I knew maybe that there could be something wrong with it, but I, I waited till about four sessions in. So what we do is we do these PRI techniques. They're very funky looking techniques. We do balloons, we use kazoos. And what we're doing is we're putting the body into a position that compresses one side and expands the other. Because in order to get optimal airflow, we're typically compressed on one side and expanded on the other, but we're reversing it when I'm doing techniques. So it's kind of uncomfortable to tell you to go into a position that you do not own and say, okay, now breathe here and use a balloon. It's really difficult. So she got pretty good at my techniques. I got her into a good space, but she was still having some fainting episodes. She actually was even having like random vomiting episodes. She wanted to, she was running marathons. She wasn't able to run. I ended up, we did an optometry appointment and her center of mass was so far over to the right that we had to give her something called a prism to pull her back to center. So we pulled her left, but really it pulled her center. Along with my techniques, working together with the optometrist, we were able to change her nervous system regulation symptoms she was having. So that was really amazing. I've seen it, of course, but this one's fresh on my mind because it was just two weeks ago. The prism, giving her that that feedback from her eyes to be able to see the world slightly differently because she thought her center of mass was so far over to the right side. Giving her that prism is not a long-term solution. It's short-term. But what the plan will be is in six months, we're going to take her off those glasses. She's going to stop wearing them. And her brain will now know where center is. She has no knee pain. She's running a marathon at the end of November. So that to me is like, ultimate goal. She came to me, she was, had been running when she, she was a soccer player in college. When she was struggling, she had to stop running and then her body really went downhill. So now within, it was probably eight months of working together. That's pretty awesome. I don't see people often either. I see people about every three weeks. So it's not like she was coming to me twice a week, like a regular PT would. So that's a, a really awesome change. She was in a barefoot shoe. We, I got her out of that very quickly. Um, she was like, yeah, these shoes are so great. She's like, I only was ever running in running shoes, but now I'm wearing them all the time and I can't believe the difference. So that's really cool. I'm also working right now in the process of working with a young girl who has a lot of, um, she doesn't really have pain. She had neck pain, chronic neck pain, 12 years old. It's very rare for a 12 year old to have neck pain. Um, 12-year-olds shouldn't be walking around with cracking their neck and, and in pain with their neck, but her bite is really off. And she actually had palatal expansion done a few years back. And I don't know if they, they did surgically it. corrected it, expanded it? So they expanded her, but I don't know the details of it. Mom didn't really know. Is that, but is that like with essentially braces that pushes it out or they, or they actually go in there and cut it? Yeah. So they do. There's a lot of different ways to do it. There's a lot right now that there's a whole airway movement for adults too, which can be really tricky because anyone who's too specialized, I think kind of misses some, some generalized thought process of looking at the body from a whole, but she did this expansion. It was not drilled in or anything. It was just something that was put up at the roof of her mouth where you had to turn a key okay. and it expanded her palate. However, they didn't hold the palate out there. I think there was something missing with that expansion. It wasn't right for her. I'm not sure, but she never had an eye prescription before. And then her eye prescription within that year jumped up to negative three on one eye, negative one on the other, which that's a very big asymmetry in the eyes. Mm -hmm. So when you have an asymmetry like that, you actually need to give the person contacts 
So this is where it gets complicated, right? Because I don't want to necessarily put plastic on somebody's eye. I don't love that. But for her to not have double vision, she needs contacts. So there are some things where you have you have to ebb and flow with what's going to work for the person and what's not. But we've gotten her into a different glasses prescription right now, and she feels way better. It's still very asymmetrical. But now we're work- I'm working with her orthodontist. We're going to redo the palate expansion, put braces on her, give her a wider palate. But as she's doing that, she's going to be working with me consistently for the next two years, once a month. And I'm going to give her things to work on. I have her doing things like hula hoop, right and left side. I have her kicking ball, right and left side. She needs to be alternating within her body, using her right side like she does her left side. Or else, which we see in a lot of individuals, I mean myself, I had braces for five years. We see a body get locked up. We see uh, soccer players tear ACLs when they're in braces or right when they come out of braces. We see all these injuries occur from the time that kids are in, they always just say like end of middle school, beginning of high school. Oh, I just got hurt. Everyone gets hurt at that time. They say puberty. I personally think it's braces. So it's really interesting. So that case will be very fascinating because I've worked with kids in braces, but I've never worked the full term with somebody. And mom is so dedicated. So I'm, I'm super excited to see how that goes for her. But I do see other like overall cases. I do get to see a lot of people in LASIK prescriptions. And the struggle with LASIK is kind of like braces. It can lock up. The- yeah, for those who don't know that, is yeah. that if, why don't you just describe what that is? LASIK. It's not good. No. <laughs> it's- but, but, and then, so we can warn people about the dangers, but then at the same time, you have to give them some reassurance because many people have already had it and it's irreversible. Yes, so. correct. So there's different types of LASIK. There's LASIK, there's PRK. They're either shaving off a bit of the eye or they're cutting the cornea, it. The cornea. Yeah, the cornea. So the problem, there's two problems with it. And yes, not to worry, there's things you can do. But the main problem for, in my world from postural restoration is in general, glasses can either benefit you or not benefit you. So if you're asymmetrical in your body and your body weight is more over your right side, which is what we typically see, and then you are getting corrected and you're putting your head forward into the ferropeter and your neck is forward and you're primarily over your right leg and your posture is not good when they're correcting your eyes, not good posture as in internal regulation of the breath, they're going to give you a prescription that might insinuate that you're in a more sympathetic position. Then you're going and wearing those glasses all day long. And that can upregulate you. Now, if like what we did together, uh, we did a, an appointment together. I know that the prescription we gave you, Dr. McCullough, is not going to upregulate you because I was there. So for these people that are just going to an optometrist, the optometrist doesn't know about this asymmetry. But we tend to see people that are very overcorrected in their eyes. Um, I'd say a lot of people in glasses are overcorrected, which can elicit other problems. So... With that, we need to first get the body even, and then we redo the eyes. Now, with LASIK, they're taking a prescription that you've been consistent in for five years or four years, I think. Just because it's been consistent does not mean that it cannot go down that it is the, or that it is the right prescription for you. So even for me, I had the same prescription for about four years. They told me I could get LASIK, and I personally just actually liked wearing glasses. I, I think it's fun. So... 
I didn't. And I'm very glad I didn't because I was overcorrected by over a diopter and a half in each eye. As I've done PRI, my prescription has gone down. Now with LASIK, they're changing the shape and they're kind of gluing you to whatever side of the body that you prefer, you're dominant on, especially if you haven't worked with a PRI provider to get you out of that. So- And, and it's a surgery, so it's permanent. You can't right. undo LASIK. No. There's, no, there's no way you can do it. It's like trying to reverse an appendectomy. It ain't going to happen. Or a gallbladder gall no. removal, which would probably be more appropriate. And they don't always do the proper testing prior to LASIK. So if there is an actual visual discrepancy, if there is, you know, an eye turn problem that isn't, has never been looked at, you, you could have a lot more issues. Okay. So what do you do if you've had LASIK? I would, I recommend go see a postural restoration provider. And then you actually might need glasses to go opposite as in, you know, change your prescription in the other direction if you're feeling chronic pain anywhere. It might be because of your eye prescription or your LASIK or it's glasses in general. It could just be the, that you're wearing the wrong prescription. So I do see that quite a lot. That I do, we do make some pretty significant postural changes in people um, with both eyes and teeth. Um, when it comes to teeth, like we talked about with the permanent teeth being removed, I also just see people that had braces, their bite changed. Now they have an open bite on one side or a cross bite. And when we are having a bite that doesn't give proper canine guidance or proper molar contact, um, if somebody's missing pieces of that, the neck is going to have to work harder to stabilize over the body. So, and we're going to go over to that dominant side. So it's really just specific to the person. When it gets to eyes and teeth, it's really specific to what we find. When it gets to teeth, it's a little less specific because we can actually see what's going on in the bite. Eyes, to me, are it's a whole world of possibilities because every person's eyes could be slightly different prescription, et cetera. With teeth, you can see a bite that maybe doesn't have proper contact, but I'm still going to go. We use two dental appliances that I make with a dentist. I don't make it. The dentist makes it, but I help the dentist in the delivery portion. So when we give a person an appliance, they put it on their bottom jaw, preferably. We don't, I don't use uh, maxillary appliances. Bottom jaw needs to be able to move and be free side to side. And that device is like an eraser for the brain. So it erases the normal bite that that person has. And when you're sleeping in that or you're working out in it, it can really make that person feel so much more grounded because you have a floor underneath your feet, which is why I talk about shoes. And you, this is your other floor, your jaw. So a lot of people experience TMJ, discomfort, problems with the disc. And that's been really big lately, I think, because our airways are shrinking a little bit, our palates are shrinking. So I, do, I definitely think that not everybody needs a dental appliance. Not everybody needs a new you know, optometry script. Um, but the people that really do need it, if they're in pain for a long time, they're not going to get away with not having it. So. Well, I wanted to get back to LASIK again. And yeah. One of the other reasons not to do it is that it essentially eliminates your possibility of ever recovering your vision fully because many, many people, probably maybe even the majority of people, I don't think it would be unfair to say, if they implemented a proper visual recovery program, they, they could get rid of their glasses permanently, permanently. 
And I think I'm going to have Taylor back on to review some of those methods. The, the, the classic method is a Bates method, who is, which is interestingly, he was an ophthalmologist a hundred years ago in Manhattan. Huh. And, uh, you know, his, he was really a pioneer in these techniques, and there's many derivatives of, of his work, but they do work. I mean, it's a lot of effort and time, but it, you, it can have enormous benef benefits, uh, depending on what the cause of your visual dysfunction is. So that's a, just one more reason why you want to avoid LASIK. It's, it's certainly convenient, but like many conveniences, especially the conveniences that tech offers us, you don't want to do those because the exchange isn't worth it. You know, it Agreed. really isn't. And in this case, it's, it's for health reasons is clearly the, the case. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you a little bit about my own story with this too. I didn't yeah, have a really? stick, but yeah. I had um, a head injury when I was 12 with a little bit of loss of consciousness. Was that related and to sports? I, what? Was it related to your sports? No, I actually, the, it's a funny story. I, I was always a little bit spicy, I guess, as a kid. And I stood up to a girl on the bus. I was in sixth grade. She wanted me to sit down. I said, no, I don't want to sit down. And she <laughs> punched me in the face. Oh, geez. Yeah, so I got punched in the face. It's okay. A little bit of getting roughed up a little bit was good for me, I think. Yeah, and yeah. it's good. I'm so proud of my 12-year-old self for already sticking up for myself. So yeah. I got, I had, yeah, I was, I was punched in the face right here. Mm -hmm. And then um, I did do athletics. So when I was 15, I had a little whiplash injury from gymnastics. When I was, I think, 17, I had another one, had one last year from snowboarding. So a couple head injuries, but really the one at 12 years old was probably the largest one. And then around 13, 14, I got glasses. Nobody in my family has glasses. No one. And a lot of times we do see that there's a genetic component when it comes to myopia. Um, so I got glasses to see far. I couldn't see well far. By high school, I was probably like negative. 1.5 because you know every year you go up just ever so slightly it's funny how that works I went I started to really wear them more in high school by graduate school I really needed them and I remember um I graduated I started doing Olympic weightlifting my prescription jumped up by like half a diopter so I was negative 1.75 in my left eye and like negative 1.5 in my right eye not a crazy prescription but still a prescription I still couldn't drive without them um, so a few head injuries by that time in my life and I had braces for five years when I was in high school or when I was in middle and high school. So my cranium was locked up for five years. It's a very long time to have braces. Typical is two years. I, I was, I, my teeth were a disaster. I, I needed to straighten my teeth, but the way it was done, especially back then was just, let's get your teeth straight. Let's not really care about your bite. So I ended up, um, when the script jumped up after graduate school, when I was training as an Olympic weightlifter, I, I didn't put two and two together until four years later, but I had insomnia for four years. And so what that script did to me at negative 1.75 and negative 1.5 is it revved my system up all day long. It's like you're looking through pinholes, looking very far all the time. It's minimizing. Um, and it revved my system up and I couldn't sleep. And then I, I moved to Texas. So way wider open space not as much as Brooklyn and Manhattan. And um, I ended up seeing a neurooptometrist there with my mentor. I was down there studying postural restoration. And I was automatically overcorrected by a full diopter in each eye then. So he lowered me. And within three days, I started to sleep differently. 
So it was such an automatic response because the nervous system, you're playing with the nervous system. You're playing with the brain. When you put glasses on all the time, what you're putting on your face is going to matter to what your body does. So I started to feel much better with that. And about five months after the eye prescription change, I got a dental appliance um, to sleep in at night. It actually opened my bite about five millimeters. So we have these biomechanical positions and a lot of times people want to fix it biomechanically. They want to expand palate biomechanically. They want to do things surgical, et cetera. But a little plastic, which it's acrylic plastic, not ideal, but ideal for me because it really helped my airway. And for, for my eyes, it also realigned where my eyes were, my cranial bones from just having a better bite overnight. And then my eye prescription dropped down another, like almost a full diopter. So now I actually am a plus in my right eye. So I went so far back that I reversed it. Yeah. And I'm a little negative 0.5 in my left eye. I do have astigmatism. So I'm still working on with that. And so you um, don't actually need glasses. No, I only wear glasses now. I, I'm not wearing anything. I, I cannot wear contacts because the astigmatism is so low that they don't correct it via contacts. Mm. I only wear glasses now if I'm like, uh, from a postural restorations perspective in that how we put my astigmatism actually opens up my peripheral on the left side a little bit, which allows me, my neck to feel really good. So mm. like for this, we're up close. I'm not going to wear glasses. I never wear it on a computer. And then if I'm playing any sort of, I mean, if I'm walking outside, I feel better in them. So it just makes it ever so crisp and it opens up me on the left side, which allows my body to be able to be more centered. So that's where the optometrist comes really into play. And I actually work with the School of Optometry in New York, which has really been an amazing experience. Um, But Sometimes I can't do all this on my own. I can have as much information, but I'm not a dentist. I'm not an optometrist. So when people come see me, sometimes they're like, oh, like I have this. And I'm like, all right, let's let's do the postural restoration first. And then we'll do all that uh, other stuff. But I really can't do my job without providers that are open-minded. And so it's been an amazing journey creating those yeah. networking. Sure. Um, well, we'll talk about ways that other professionals can uh, get hooked into this uh, yeah. in a bit, but I wanted to highlight one area that I think you probably have some good uh, uh, treatment suggestions on, and that is something's coming really popular, uh, sort of exponentially, uh, almost an epidemic of uh, sleep apnea and people needing yeah. CPAP machines. So, what's your take on that? My take on a CPAP machine is if you can't breathe laying down without one, well, then you shouldn't be forcing air down your throat. That's my my big take home point. So people so what that people are do instead, I think they need to see a postural restoration provider and learn how to breathe, learn how to expand their chest, learn how to not just only breathe into the belly, to not only be in an extended position where they're using their neck to lift their ribs up to pull air in. I think we need to teach people how to be breathing better which I'm coming out with something. So it's coming there. So that will lead into the the rest of it. But I definitely think the more dentists and orthodontists that are educated on postural restoration, the more they can work together to help patients. Because I really think that when you're forcing air down someone's throat, especially a lot of times it goes nose and mouth, you're not getting proper flow at all within the body. Um, there's a big push with a lot of the airway stuff 
there's a big push with kids getting tongue tie releases. Um, but you're right with adults right now, CPAP is the biggest thing. And I think if you teach somebody, I, t- I could take people off CPAPs more than I would ever put somebody on one. So I think you should, yes, you need to learn how to breathe. You had some good success with people with, who are on CPAPs. Um, I've had success taking people off of them. That's what I meant. That's yeah. What I mean. So I had a patient, this one was an amazing case, very narrow airway, uh, had a pretty strong glasses prescription, trauma, head injuries. So really the gamut of everything, super narrow airway. That's like the biggest thing that is really hard to combat biomechanically when someone is that narrow in their palate. And we ended up getting her dental appliance, we changed her eye prescription. We adjust the dental appliance, change the eye prescription. And then eventually I was like, why don't you try the mouth tape without, with your dental appliance in at night and try to stop using your CPAP and just see, because she was having 55 episodes an hour where she was stopping to breathe, an hour. And I have the chart of the day she started mouth breathing. The week she started, it went from 55 to about 13, then to about five an hour. Five is normal. So- uh, it's an amazing, I should send it to you. Five, five per hour at night? Yeah. Okay. So five, anywhere uh, under five is normal. But and, it she goes, was having, and it goes to zero if you're taping. Well, she was taping and still having five. So I was oh, fine yeah, with how, that. How could you be mouth breathing if your mouth is taped? Uh, it's, it's, it's checking how many times you stop breathing per hour. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So when she taped, it went from 55 to five. Wow. It was amazing. It, and you, within a week. It was amazing. Do you, and is what's your take on sort of universally it recommending people to a sleep on their back at night and then mouth tape because it's really hard to mouth mouth tape if you're not sleeping on your back. Yeah, I, I don't actually give. So my experience with insomnia, mm-hmm. bad insomnia. I don't give sleep recommendations to people. I tell them I don't care how you sleep. These are some things I like. I like a pillow from PRI that they they have or like a little towel roll underneath the mm-hmm. neck. Yeah, we use, it, we use it recommend the neck nest. Yeah, yeah. I don't tell people what side to sleep on because I just care if the person sleeps, especially mm-hmm. if they struggle to sleep. I think that you can mouth tape really anywhere in bed. Okay. There are some tapes that are better than others. So for children, especially, you don't want to just tape their whole mouth shut because I, I just to be safe. There's something called myotape, which I recommend, and it kind of goes around the lips. Um, and that's what I recommend for people. That is the safest option, Not most likely not going to have problems because if you want to mouth breathe, you can. Um, I personally, if I, I don't mouth tape anymore because my brain has adapted to it. I did it for about two months, and I know now if I sleep with tape on, it stays on the whole night. So I, and I, I can feel that I, I nasal breathe pretty efficiently. But if I mouth tape, if I tape now, I literally take scotch tape and I just go like that. Mm. So it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be expensive. It's a very, it can be very cheap. I will say though, for children, just, I would be careful with kids, but at the same time, kids in their developing years, if they are mouth breathing, it's going to cause a problem because their faces are going to elongate. They're yeah. going to use accessory muscles to breathe. It's not great. So that is a very quick um, change that you can give somebody that can elicit wide array of changes within their system. I, I mean, there are some people that I had a girl yesterday. She was like, the mouth taping really did wonders. And it's like, wow, that's so awesome. So that tells yeah. me how much that person was not nasal breathing. Sure. So, yeah, I, 
I recommend paper tape, which is a lot better than Scottish tape. <laughs> it's a lot more flexible and pliable. I should and, get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, paper tape for sure. So and it's awesome. relatively inexpensive. And you can even reuse it a lot of times. You just put it. Yeah. You know, so you don't have to use a new piece every day. But it's, I mean, it probably costs you a, a few dollars a year. I mean, it's pretty cheap. Right. So it's nothing. So that's an yeah. amazing intervention that anyone can really try at home. Yeah. Without having any cost. Yeah. Um, or virtually none. So let's, I want to talk about the educational possibilities. But before I do that, I wanted to finish up on my bunion again, because there are other people who suffer with this. And just yeah. to give you the, the, the highlight of the shoe that I chose was a Brooks. There were two models, the Dyad and the Adrenaline. And mm -hmm. I, I, and it was just a subjective guess. I mean, according to what is your recommendation. And for me, the, the Dyad was seemed a lot more comfortable. It literally, is one of the most comfortable shoes I've ever had. Yeah. And I've had a lot of shoes. I've been wearing running shoes for over 50 years, over 50 years. Actually, I stopped for oh, 10 years for the most, but I, I would wear them when I travel because you can't get on a plane or go into a lot of hotels unless you have shoes on. So, but for a decade there, I wasn't wearing many much shoes uh, or shoes much. Uh, but these shoes are great. And the, the, the recommendation, the specific if you have a bunion, you're probably going to want to use some type of spacer. And then of course you have the extra width that you need in the, the toe box. So the reason why Brooks, Brooks is so good is I believe it's the only one, as far as I know, the only one that has, you can change, you can order larger width sizes. Yeah. A6 so, you can do. Okay. Okay. I didn't, wasn't yeah. aware of that. So, yeah. you, but, but if you're going to do that, don't order them online through an online shoe store, unless it's the manufacturer. Because they, they have to carry all this inventory. So you order from Brooks directly or Asics, and then they've got everything there. So you get the full range of sizes and you don't have to wait. And it's about the same price. You know, there's not really much of a difference. So so if you if you have bunions and the Brooks Dyad or the Adrenaline, they're both really excellent shoes. But I, I think I ordered the double EY, double wide. <laughs> I don't know how they classify it, but it was, it's the widest shoe you can get. So it was good. Uh, and it's been working really well. I mean, it, I thought they might have been too wide, but it, not really. And it's it's, just, no. it's almost like a square square toe box, you know. So that's the biggest complaint I get is that the minimal shoes have a wide toe box. They're made with a wide toe box, and Brooks and Asics aren't. But you can get X wide, and in reality, if you pronate that foot effectively, your foot's going to flatten out. Sure, we want room in the actual shoe for it. But they, the, the marketing point of the wide toe box is that, oh, your toes have to spread. Your toes will spread if you know how to pronate. So I think X wide or whatever, y, I wear Asics with a wide toe box. Right now I'm wearing, um, I have the Brooks Adrenaline right here. The Brooks Dyad are a great shoe for like overall. And what I can do is I can send you the updated shoe list and you can oh, attach yeah, it. Yeah, that would be great. So, you can, so people can check it out. All right, now let's dive into the educational opportunities for two classes of people, the professionals, like the specifically the dentist and the optometrist, yeah. who might be interested in learning more about this for themselves professionally or, you know, it's, it's at least aligning with the PRI specialist so that they can, you know, be sensitive yeah. to these issues and, and work collaboratively. So what are the educational opportunities for professionals or someone like yourself who finds this fascinating and wants to, to study yeah. Yeah, so their postural restoration teachers course is only for practitioners. Um, they do they don't have a vision course right now, 
but they do have something called forward locomotion, which really is a vision course. And then they do have cervical and then cervical occlusion. Um, and occlusion is of course for dentistry. So uh, dentists and optometrists can kind of jump and take those courses, but regular practitioners, chiropractors, athletic trainers, physical therapists, uh, personal trainers can take any of the courses and you start with the three basic courses and then you can go up. Now the courses are so in depth that most people take them twice. So for example, there are three basic courses. I've taken one of them three times and one of them twice. And this weekend I took a cervical course for the second time. So that is, that's typical. So just know going in, it is a commitment. You're committing to learning a whole language and a whole new way of looking at the body. Um, for a practitioners, especially optometrists and dentists, if you're interested in this, I would recommend going on the Postural Restoration website, looking at find a provider and connect with some of the providers that might be in your area. So we're establishing a huge hub in New York. Um, if you're in New York, please reach out to me. I would love to include you in this hub. But I know that there are other hubs. There's one in Texas, of course, Nebraska. There's in Seattle. There's a, a good amount of practitioners. California and San Diego is starting. There's a little, um, there's one in Minnesota. They're happening. Atlanta, I think, and North Carolina. So there are places. There are only about 200 PRI certified practitioners. There are not that many of us. So we are trying to collectively get the word out about this. Um, and I really think it's life-changing for people. I know it is. So if you're a provider, please reach out to your, to your local PRI person. And if you can't find somebody on the website, send me a message and, or send Postural Restoration a message, and they'll help connect you to somebody. Um, it takes time to, for us to get uh, efficient at these courses and at applying the information. So just know when you're diving in, it, it's, it's a journey. So that's kind of what they have for the providers. They do have a lot on the postural restoration website for if you're interested in that, and you can always contact them and they'll give you more information. They're trying. I know in Europe, in London, and in Austria, there are um, providers. I'm friends with them, and they're really bringing it out to the UK and to Europe. So it will, it, it's going to grow. So that that's really what my recommendation for professionals. All right. So for... Uh... People who are not professionals and have, have specific problems, and they obviously could consult with a local PRI person. But odds are, there's probably one not one locally to right. you. Since there's only 200 in the country, yeah. so are there any virtual options? Is that even a consideration? Or do you have any training courses that you offer? Yeah. So yes, you can definitely consult a local PRI provider. It depends where you are in the country. If you're not in America, it's going to be harder. People do fly to see providers. I, I That does happen pretty often. I did. Um, yes, you did. I, it happens really lately. It's been a big thing. I know people have flown in from California, from all different places. So I do have like an application if you want to be my patient. And then Nebraska also has a prime program. So they definitely accept people from all over. Um, and then I'm in the process of working on something for general people who are struggling and they're living in Sweden, let's say, and there's no access to a PRI provider and they can't fly to see one. Now, virtual is always an option. It is not as good as in person. It is not as, you're not going to see as much as I can show you in person. However, the this program I'm um, working on, it's called Rooted Well. You can sign up on my website right now for a wait list to be on it. But it's going to give you a lot of the basics, a lot of what we talked about here, but way more in depth. 
And there's going to be phases of programming where I give out techniques that a lot of PRI providers can give you, but these ones are not going to be necessarily specific to you, but they should help you at least get you to a solid place where you're feeling better. And if you follow along with the steps, um, the goal is to help as many people as possible. So it's not done yet, but it's, it'll be out very, very soon. So we're still filming, but it, oh, it's cool. going to be good, good for general people. So. Well, great. Well, you're, you're a fireball, lots of energy and commitment and dedication. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing and helping so many people. Thank you for having me on here. Thanks for coming and hanging out in New York. That was a great time. Yeah, it was fun.